This is Green Seas, a podcast by Tradewinds about the environment and the business of the ocean. I'm Eric Priante Martin, and today we're going to ask whether shipping should even consider the nuclear option. When I was preparing for the recent Green Seas Fuels Forum in New York, the plan was to keep the focus on alternative fuels that ship owners and operators are adopting today as the industry faces pressure to cut its carbon emissions. So I didn't prepare any questions about nuclear power because though it has zero carbon emissions, it just seems so far off. And yet, it became a major subject of discussion anyway across all three of the day's sessions, and it sparked a spirited debate. What we didn't have in that discussion was someone who's been working day in and day out to bring nuclear propulsion to shipping. Someone like Mikael Bo, whose company Core Power has been working with a coalition of partners to develop a molten salt reactor that could power a ship and that its proponents believe provides a safer alternative to the nuclear energy that we're used to. So before getting to our debate on the stage, I wanted to ask him for an update on nuclear for shipping. I think, Eric, to, to get to where we are and to get to the latest, maybe we take a step back as well and look at how we got here, right? Um, because, you know, what we've realized, and I think what so many people around the world are realizing now is that nuclear is misunderstood. You know, we had this we had this fear, or we still have in many parts of the world, you know, a fear of nuclear, that, that nuclear is unsafe or that it's somehow going to cause us to, to die in a, in, a, in a horrible way. And it just doesn't doesn't compute. It's not what's been happening. That's not how things work. And, you know, it's been, it's been misunderstood and misrepresented for so long. And I think the nuclear industry, as it's grown up to be, um, has, has been rather poor at, you know, promoting itself and explaining what it is that it actually does. So, you know, this, this, this fear that we've gradually now started to overcome in the shipping industry and, and to a large extent also in heavy industry you know, is is coming from the fact that people are realizing that actually, hang on a minute, you know, what what's the fuss about here? You know, it's never killed anyone. In fact, we use nuclear radiation to cure people of illness, not cause illnesses, you know, and it isn't anything to do with nuclear weapons. Nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons, I think we can all agree, is probably the most terrible thing out there, and it really shouldn't exist. But nuclear energy and nuclear weapons are as different as a gun and a teaspoon, right? I mean, they're made of made of the same material, but they don't perform the same function. Where we've got to is in, in three areas, really. We've gotten to a point of um, in, in the development of the technology. We've gotten to the point in the development and preparation of the market, if you like. You know, everyone's uh, uh, everyone's sort of view on how this is going to work. And then we've gotten to a certain point in the way that rules and regulations are going to work as well, because all of those three things are, are terribly important in order to be able to demonstrate prototype and then demonstrate how this is going to work. So to take one each one of those in turn, technology, we've gotten now to the point where we're, you know, we've 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 solved or we're starting to, to find the final solution, if you like, on some of those really difficult issues. Because nuclear is difficult, it's hard, it's expensive, it's difficult. You never know what's going to happen next. It's really tricky to get it right. But, you know, it's important to, to carry on to, to get to, to the end point. So we, some of those really difficult technical challenges we're starting to overcome, we can start to see exactly how these molten salt reactors are going to work, erosion, corrosion. Um, on the market, we're starting to see now, you know, it's not just us talking about it. It's 
as you had on your on in your forum. You have you have you know senior leaders and and highly intelligent people, you know, talking intelligently about this, and and that's good. That means that there is a debate. That means that people are are putting facts on the table and they're questioning them and they're trying to understand them, and that's just incredibly healthy. And then in terms of regulations, we're now getting to the point where you know the UK has passed the nuclear ships regulation. The IAEA in Vienna is now starting to produce safety-related material on floating nuclear reactors and then moving on to nuclear ships. We start to see in the United States, you know, the likes of the NRC and the US Coast Guard, et cetera, starting to get engaged in that process to see how the US is going to do it. The US government through the US Department of Energy funding American Bureau of Shipping to, as you heard on the or on your panel as well, from American Bureau of Shipping, they've been funded to, if you like, study a pathway. How do we get this done? How, how does this get to work? So, you know, I think what we've got is, you know, another another two, three years before we've got that start point, if you like, of knowing exactly where the first deployment's going to be, how it's going to be prototyped, demonstrated, who is going to be for, what, under what rules and regulations of licensing regime, etc. And that's, that, that comes about very quickly. You know, that's it's sort of almost like tomorrow, isn't it? Explain for our audience what the uh the the molten salt reactor is and 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 its key differences with the nuclear power that um that everybody knows fundamentally a molten salt reactor is um diff- it, 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 it's fundamentally different from the way conventional nuclear works so just just right from the from the from scratch you know nuclear is about Taking a, a material which um, which where where you can split the nucleus and create excess neutrons that go off and split more material, etc., so that you create a chain reaction. So nuclear a nuclear chain reaction is really what you want in this a nice sort of even temperature or creation of, of heat at, at good temperature. Now you can do that in a reactor with uh, uranium or with plutonium or with thorium or anything that that can be split. Right, that kind of works. And then you need to transport that heat to a power conversion system. So you need to transport it into some sort of turbine that can spin and create electricity or kinetic energy or something like that. And normally what you do in the reactor is you combine that that, that, uh, that heat transfer medium with a coolant, something that you know regulates the, the, the cooling of the reactor. So you have the fuel and the coolant are two separate things. That means that it's theoretically possible, as you've had in the past, that you could lose the coolant. You have a leak of the coolant or the coolant is not supplied to the reactor and then you'd have an overheating and a meltdown. Right? That's important. In a molten salt reactor, fundamentally, what you have is that the fuel is mixed into the coolant. So the coolant is salt, which is hot so at, at a high temperature, it's liquid. And then you've got the, the, the uranium or whichever fuel you're using, which is then in, in, infused into that into that coolant. So now the fuel and the coolant are the same thing. You you can't lose one or the other. You know, if you lose anything at all, it it sort of just stops all by itself. And because you can because you can then circulate this fluid fuel, which is also the coolant, around inside the reactor, you can run what's called a closed fuel cycle. And a closed fuel cycle is one where you're not having to add anything to the process. You're not adding fuel. You're not taking anything out. You're not adding any coolant. You have a closed fuel cycle, which is really important from a security perspective as well. I mean, if we can move a reactor around at sea, you know, it's important that nobody can sort of open it up and take things out of it. A closed fuel cycle, you can't do that. 
in an open fuel cycle where you have a you know, fuel rods and coolant, you, you could potentially do that. It's difficult, but it's potential. So it's very good from a safety perspective because it's passive safety. It's very good from a security perspective because it has that design, that has that in-depth inherent security feature in it. Now, the, the other thing that's important with the molten salt reactor, specifically the molten fluoride fast reactor that we're building in the United States, is that you know it operates at a fuel efficiency, which is substantially different to any other nuclear that's been built in the past. I mean, you, we're literally able to run fuel cycles for so long that you could conceive of you know a single fuel load running a ship at full power for, for, for its entire life, right? That, that, that matters. And then the, the last thing, and this is also very important and is specifically important for maritime, is that because you've got a liquid fuel inside the reactor, there's no pressure. If you have a, a, a coolant, like a water-cooled reactor, for example, which is what naval reactors use and standard uh, conventional power reactors use, that water is under extremely high pressure in order to get the temperature up to a useful temperature. So if you have a leak, of course, you've got then a, a very fast disbursement of steam, and that steam is radioactive, and then you can, you know, you have that sort of uh, environmental issues around there. Here's an ambient pressure reactor. So even if there's a leak, it sort of you know, it spills out into the compartment around the reactor and not into the environment. And there is no there's no possibility that you could form some sort of plume of radioactivity around it like you can with conventional reactors. And that means that that evacuation zone, that emergency planning zone that's required around all of these types of technologies, as well as many other types of technologies, you know, can be shrunk down and become very small. And our hope is that we can get it down to the boundary of the ship, which means that, you know, any evacuation required from an accident involving the reactor compartment is not required beyond the boundaries of the ship. So, you know, even if it happens in a port, it's not like the, the port or the port city or the, the terminals have to be concerned about it. You'd evacuate fore and aft of the reactor, just like you would from a fire or a gas leak or, you know, anything else. So that 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 welcome in port um, aspect of the modern salt reactor is incredibly important. Because without that, Eric, you know, frankly, I don't think we're going to get very far. What should our listeners know about the testing that's going on and the development of the reactor that, that Core Power is involved in? So testing is everything. Uh, testing is, is the fundamental principle of all of this. I mean, failure is the one thing that teaches us something. Success teaches us nothing. Failure teaches everything, right? So by, by trying to break everything, by trying to break every component, every pipe, every bit of chemical, every flange, every pump, every connection, every weld, everything. You try to break it until you cannot break it. Uh, that's, the, that's the testing. And it's exhausting. It takes a long time to get it right. And you find little things that you hadn't thought of that you then, you then had to bring up, and then that opens up a, a new can of worms. So you know, testing is exhaustive. It's exhausting and it's exhaustive. That's how things are done properly. So we've been testing salt loops, chemicals inside of different types of materials, you know, at different speeds, different temperatures, whether it's by natural convection or by forced convection, etc. You know, for almost 10 years now, since 2013, right? That's that's almost 10 years. And we've gotten to the point where we've kind of figured out how this is going to work. Um and, and, and that's where it takes. And then you add all those component pieces together and you test them and you test the connections, you test them in concert with each other, et cetera. So, you know, the latest development is that 
you know, uh, late part of last year, we, we finished the building of something called integrated effects test. So that's all of the tests put together in a huge machine. It's the world's largest molten salt test facility, which now sits outside of Seattle in the United States. It's a very expensive, very complicated bit of kit, but it is awesome. And it's you know, going to be providing results on, on, on the way that molten salts flow and the way that the, the sort of thermal hydraulics, if you like, of, of, of the machine that um, it, you know, has never been done before. So testing is, is like I said, is, is everything. And we'll continue to test. I mean, years left of, of testing everything. Once you've got to the point where you've got that actual first experimental reactor, which is going to, was due to come on the stream in, in, at the end of 2025, beginning of 2026, so around about that point there, um, you know, we will have tested everything. And that needs to be tested. And then we go on and test everything again. So that's kind of, that's kind of the, 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 the beating heart of the whole program is testing it until it breaks, or until it can't break anymore. So as I mentioned, at Greensea's first live event, nuclear-powered shipping was a hot-button topic. It started with an anonymous question from the audience put to Carnival Corporation's Chief Maritime Officer, William Burke. So you may know that I spent uh, a long time in the U.S. Navy Submarine Force and uh, commanded a nuclear submarine, commanded a squadron of nuclear submarines. And so I do have a little experience with the nuclear. Um, I think you... I'm not opposed to nuclear. Uh, I'm a supporter of nuclear. I think that when you, you have to consider a number of things when you think about nuclear. Um, for the cruise industry, we frequently park downtown when we go to visit a, a port. And so the question is similar to what you asked, Eric. Will we be allowed to park downtown? in the 700 places we visit around the world. Um, if we can't, then that's probably not a fuel we want to use. The, uh, the training requirements are significant for nuclear. To be able to operate the reactor, I spent about six months getting the equivalent of a, a master's in nuclear engineering, six months learning how to operate on a land-based power plant, and then another couple months qualifying on the submarine to operate the power plant. Um, so that's not the kind of training we put our people through. I mean, that's in addition to all your, your, um, the, the other training to get licensed. So that's not the type of training we typically do in the commercial industry. So that's an issue. Um, Maintenance is a challenge. You know, when, when you have a nuclear issue, you're probably going to have, when I think about our ships, we might have, on the big ships, you might have two reactors on board, um, maybe only one. Is that, when you need to do maintenance on that reactor, you need to do maintenance on that reactor. So that, that makes it challenging to operate the cruise ship the way you would want to, because today we typically have four, five, or six engines on the ship, and so if one's down, you can you can operate another one. Um, that's not to say that nuclear is unreliable, because it's extremely reliable. Um, so those are just a couple of the challenges I, I see for operating those. Um, I'm not as familiar as I'd like to be on the small modular reactors that are out there today. 
I'm, I'm used to the pressurized water reactors that we use in the Navy. So those may offer some additional opportunities. And then you have to overcome the challenge that Eric mentioned. You know, there's, there's a lot of people that are afraid of nuclear just because they don't know enough about it. And uh, so that's, that's something you have to overcome commercially as well. So there's a number of impediments to it. I think it's probably more useful for other shipping areas than, than, uh, than crews at this point, but I'm certainly open to, open to hear other, other views. But Burke wasn't alone. Iman Abdallah, the operations director at major vessel operator Cargill Ocean Transportation, sees prospects for nuclear in the future, even though her company is currently investing in biofuels, methanol, and even wind propulsion for its ships. We don't think that, you know, the final solution to decarb shipping is going to be one specific type of fuel. So, you know, one of the audiences asked earlier about nuclear. We also believe that nuclear will most likely, and I'm not going to say the word definitely, although I will, I'm tempted to, is going to be the end solution, right? But from here till we reach that end solution, we're going to have to use green methanol, and methanol actually, you know, Ultimately, we want to use only green methanol, but until we use only green methanol, we're going to probably have to go through different shades and different colors, right? From gray to blue and so forth. And then there was Hamish Norton, president of shipowner Starbolt Carriers. My colleague Joe Brady asked him about how he sees shipping's menu of alternative fuels under consideration. You know, then there's nuclear, which probably doesn't work for, lar- for small ships, but it might work for large ships and, um, you know, the, the, once you've paid the cost of a nuclear reactor, which is going to cost a lot of money, whether it's big or small, and you've bit the bullet, uh, you know, to hire a crew of retired Navy officers uh, to run your ship with a nuclear reactor, you know, maybe you design that reactor to let your ship go 25 or 30 knots. You know, so maybe it, it pays for itself in ways that, that uh, you know, haven't been so obvious. Then we got to our panel of financial experts. Surely the talk of nuclear shipping is over now, right? Wrong. Here's Michael Weber, who heads Weber Research and Advisory. To your point, we, we spend a lot of time outside of research also on, on alternative fuels. Um, a lot of time in methanol, um, obviously a lot of time in LNG and RNG, as well as ammonia. Um, Actually, I feel compelled to, before I even get into that, like I think something Hamish said in his remarks around nuclear energy, there, there's so much double counting when it comes to electrification targets and green fuel targets. I don't think any of this works unless we can actually crack uh, the right method to deploy more dispatchable nuclear energy, particularly offshore. Um, just the electrification double counting alone um, is just smacking us in the face and we kind of ignore it as we talk about alternative fuels. Then there's Macquarie Banks, Morton Arnson. The last thing is I have to say nuclear because I just think it's kind of fascinating because I think we are in a all the above world, but there's been 160 nuclear vessels built in the world. There hasn't been an incident on any of them. Well, five submarines sunk, but they didn't cause any nuclear problems. The first commercial nuclear powered vessel was built in the United States in 1959 in Camden Shipyard, New Jersey, Camden Shipyard, New Jersey for $46.9 million, basically a third of the cost of a Jones Act MR today in a U.S. yard. 
So my only point is that, uh, is that uh, we're going to have to try different things. Eisenhower thought that nuclear power could become a viable, peaceful alternative for industry. And I would not, not be surprised if you see a, little, a, a lot faster action on that. Not till 2035 or 2040, but, but I think that's coming too. Nikos Petrokakos, senior advisor for decarbonization at Tufton, which invests in shipping, also weighed in. I'm very pro-nuclear as an energy source, but I'm very skeptical about it being on ships. Uh, not because of the risk, but because of the NIMBY effect of, you know, as they mentioned earlier, not being allowed to get into port. And even once we get past that, the cost is significantly higher, and it changes the whole structure of how shipping works. Right now, it's, it's a fairly low cost with a high operating cost. You're switching it to a very high new building cost for a very low operating cost. Um, the training aside, the, you know, the insurance aspects and the financing aspects, if one of those ships sinks, even if it's with the new molten salt reactors and it's not as dangerous environmentally, financially, it, it completely changes the game, I think. So I think it's, nuclear is going to be there to produce the hydrogen as opposed to being a power on the ship. And then there's Michael Parker, top shipping and offshore banker at City. I mean, I agree with Morton. Um, you need to look back and forward. This is not a new, there's a new form of the technology, but this is used by navies and has been used commercially. I think what we have to get used to in this industry is we're going back to the past, which is how shipping, particularly on the financial side, started, which was long-term employment and building those vessels against that. The green corridors is how this industry will decarbonize at, at a pace, call it big projects if you like, but the process has already started around major green corridors in the iron ore space and, and even the container space. That is going to need long-term commitments by shipyards, fuel producers, the cargo owners, in order to raise the finance at competitive rates with the regulatory frameworks with contracts for difference or subsidies or carbon levy. That isn't going to be a speculative spot business. So when the new nuclear technology is proven, and there's a lot of work going on it in this country, and it's being done primarily for energy security, as we've seen, the shipping industry came to the rescue of Germany with the FSRUs that Greek and Norwegians had built and were available to be used. They built the terminals on land very quickly. But this is, this is, this is why people don't understand this industry is going to change very dramatically in the next 10 to 15 years. And if the nuclear technology tests as an offshore power source, which it will be needed, as we heard in the first panel, to generate the renewable uh, power to create the fuels, then it'll get on board a ship. You'll have to get over the, the whole issue of consumer um, choice, if you like, as the Admiral sa said earlier. But this is a fundamental change because the future of shipping will not get the capital from the private sector, and it'll be public-private finance together, unless there is a degree of certainty. There'll be operational risk, there'll be inflation, but essentially we're going back to an era where people don't build ships speculatively because they're committed to the long-term safe and secure transport of the world's essential goods. Now, eventually, of course, when everything is green, someone will come up and build a speculative green ship and history will repeat itself. But until that point, there's a huge shift taking place. And if the technology works, nuclear will be part of that. On long-haul shipping, containers, cape-sized bulk carriers, 
and even Cruz, and I admit I'm the person who asked that question in the first panel, <laughs> simply because that's how you take out 80% of all shipping emissions. That's how you will power Caribbean islands. I mean, we need to think differently, but actually we need to think back to the 1950s when shipping finance started by the CEOs of banks that both Morton and I worked for, called Rockefeller and Riston, who financed Anassis and Iarcos when they came to replace the Liberty ships, and they produced a thing called the Texaco Time Charter. And that's what Green Corridors are going to be about, creating the frameworks for long-term, sustainable, secure shipping. Yeah, if, if I can just add on to that, I sorry. Uh, both get a, get a chance. One, one point to Nichols on the, uh, the, the nuclear and coming into port. If many of you may remember the first time an LNG carrier came into Boston, they, the mayor basically closed the town. They sent the Celtics and the Bruins and the Patriots teams you know, to Vermont. Uh, they had police escorts, and then gradually they started to realize that this technology actually can work done safely, you know, with proper class rules and all that. And now that's that does, now the Bruins stay in town. They threw Tom Brady out, but other than that, they're, <laughs> it's happening. As these money men were talking, I stood in the audience and heard a sigh. It was Kendra Ulrich, director of shipping campaigns at environmental NGO Stand.Earth. Though she's focused on reducing shipping's environmental impact now, what the audience didn't know is that she's also worked on campaigns focused on the nuclear power sector. Yeah, hi, thank you. Um, I am really interested to hear that nuclear energy is being seen as a potential solution for the shipping sector. Um, there's a lot that I could say about nuclear energy. I worked on it for 15 years. Um, but the, the cost analysis for transitioning to nuclear energy simply doesn't make sense when you look at the history of nuclear new builds. It takes 10 years to build a reactor. It takes, you know, cost overruns are generally in the billions of dollars. You've got nuclear on vessels, yes, but they are military. Who is going to be regulating uh, nuclear reactors on board ships in international waters because the IMO is not equipped to deal with that. And then you also have the geopolitical risk associated with having nuclear reactors on ships, increasing tensions. You've got, you know, potentially uh, if you had that, you know, in current times, you've got ships operating in the Black Sea. Would you really want to have that ship also have a reactor on board? Um, so I'd just be interested to hear a little bit more about where this thought process is coming from, um, because they're slow, they're really expensive. Okay. Um, check. A strong question. Well, I think we're going to bring Hamish off the bench. Starbucks Hamish Norton stood up and searched for a mic. He found one by taking Joe's place at the podium. I don't have can, 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 we, can we turn uh, this on, please, for Hamish? Keep in mind that in addition to being a top executive at a major shipping company, Norton is also a physicist. Ba basically, what, what, what seems to me likely to happen is that we're going to see things called small modular reactors get type approval in, in the United States so that they can be basically made one after the other in series and sold as commercial products. And, um, you know, if you, if you use the latest technology, um, you, you can make quite small reactors that are, seem to be basically so safe that you can just walk away and there's all, essentially nothing you can do to make them melt down. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 
indeed, you know, one-off large nuclear reactors that are built on land, you know, to produce gigawatts of power take a long time to build, have been very expensive. But if you make a small reactor that produces, you know, 20 to 50 megawatts of power uh, that's type approved so that they can be made in a factory and stamped out, um, at least there's a, there's a hope that that could be done at reasonable cost. Thanks. Um, as far as small modular reactors go, I mean, they've been in development for 10 years. We have, I think, one, two that are in operation in Russia. Um, we have, I, I was interested to hear about the floating nuclear reactors as well um, as a suggestion given that there's only one in the world that's currently in operation because they're very complicated and very expensive. I'm sure you're aware though that the uh, small modular reactors, um, Stanford just released a study last year showing that actually you have greater neutron leakage from small modular reactors, greater um, levels of, you know, uh, irradiation and embrittlement, and therefore greater volumes of nuclear waste from small modular reactors, for which we do not have a solution. And also, in terms of reactors on ships, you know, the components of a nuclear reactor do not last forever. Because of neutron bombardment, things become embrittled, they wear out. And in order to replace the, um, you know, containment and all of the components, the major components, um, you have to cut a giant hole in the side of a ship, uh, which is also incredibly costly. So in terms of the long-term benefits, um, you know, small modular reactors, I've been hearing about these for 10 years now. Um, there's no, none in operation, well, one in Russia. Um, and uh, yeah, they actually seem to produce less energy um, than a large nuclear reactor well, for the uranium fuel and produce more waste that you then have to deal with as well. I believe the sentiment from the panel was twofold. The first being that we, we shouldn't discount the ingenuity that's going to be needed um, to, to, to get to where we need to go, and that there is a deeper and richer history, and there's a nuclear in the marine space, and we might think, just taking a snapshot of the, of the space today, your points are all taken. The other point is that working backwards from the amount of clean energy that's going to be needed to hit the electrification goals and CI targets everyone has, that it's almost a prerequisite large portion of the energy mix and what form that takes is, I don't think anyone up here is taking a particularly strong stance on. Um, yeah. Yeah, and of course, there are no ammonia engines at the moment yep. either. You know, I mean, basically, every technology we're talking about hasn't been actually, you know, developed yet in a, in a mature way. But, you know, I, I, I think in terms of small modular reactors, yes, there's, there's neutron embrittlement, but, you know, I, I note that, you know, uh, U.S. Navy um, ships, you know, last a long time with, with their reactors. And, yes, they're, they, they, it's quite a process to scrap those ships, but, um, you know, they have been safely scrapped. Um, and that technology presumably can be developed further as well. And, you know, with fast neutron molten salt reactors, you can burn through that nuclear waste and actually leave very little waste at the end of the, at the, end of the cycle, which is, you know, maybe 100 years long, um, you know, if, if you use fast neutrons. Anyway. Okay. Uh, Thank you, Hamish. Well, one thing um, I would like to add maybe on a yeah, yes. positive note. Sure, um, yes. Yeah. 
one takeaway I'm getting from this back and forth and from the answers, if you ask most people on this panel or maybe generally shipping five years ago on a, on a similar panel, if methanol, ammonia, or any of this, let alone nuclear, was going to happen, most answers would be probably not, I don't know. You know, shipping has historically been, bring me regulation, I'll fight it back until, as far as I can, at some point I'll implement it. This is the first time, a lot of it is with you know, the work you've been doing, that the industry is actually pushing regulation or asking for more regulation. Um, and I think that's part of why I'm optimistic about 2030. I think the industry is finally leading rather than waiting for regulation to come. And I think that that's why I'm positive about sort of where we're heading as an industry. Okay, nice, nice point. Um, I think maybe we have time for one more, if we just here. It's not about nuclear, please. Uh, please, yeah. <laughs> Now, one outfit that participated in our event has been taking a hard look at nuclear. It's American Bureau of Shipping, or ABS. As a classification society, it has a major role in exploring future technologies for shipping to ensure they can be adopted safely. I asked Chief Operating Officer John McDonald what ABS has found out so far. I, I hate to even bring it up, but uh, okay. So, uh, no, we, we are very much involved in, in the nuclear uh, side of the, the business right now. Um, many of you may know that uh, a few months back, the Department of Energy here in the U.S. Uh, awarded ABS a, a pretty sizable grant to basically build a, a couple of conceptual designs for commercial nuclear vessels. And those were those molten salt reactors. Uh, so we, we're actually working through that now. Uh, we've got the Department of Energy. We've got uh, a few different departments within in the uh, U.S. government that are kind of feeding into that to support. Uh, and at the same time, we're working with the core, core powers, the terror powers of, of the world to basically kind of support those designs. Um, but what's interesting is that now, uh, and I think it was announced maybe last week, is now there's a, a consortium in Korea of ship owners and ship the shipyards that are also going out for nuclear uh, in the commercial space. Uh, ABS is also involved in that. So we talk about it, and it's, it's a long stretch, but it's being talked about more than a lot of different topics in the maritime industry today because I think a, a lot of people think that that is, that is the final kind of answer for either doing the green fuels ashore and providing that green uh, power or actually onboard application. Yeah, we, we heard in our first panel about the, the kind of public perception of safety concerns. What's, you, what's your, what's the initial impressions in, in this work of the, the, um, the safety risks of nuclear? Yeah, so uh, that's, that's actually one of the, the big uh, outcomes that we're pulling out of this uh, um, grant that we're doing with the Department of Energy. Uh, you know, one of the biggest things is, is, I think somebody mentioned about hiring a bunch of retired Navy uh, uh, nuclear uh, uh, crew. It's the competency of the crews that, that you're going to have to start looking at. And, and I know uh, in the shipping world today, we're all challenged with that as far as having competent people with the, the new technology that's out there today, uh, the growth in, in a lot of the market segments, and, um, and getting, you know, the, that uh, education and knowledge base into a lot of this, the new uh, uh, technology and fuels that we're working with, nuclear being at the end of that uh, for sure. So uh, that's a big challenge. Obviously, there's many safety considerations on board. The removal of the, the um, 
the core and, and you know, how you handle that. And then, of course, all the social um, kind of uh, uh, hurdles that you have to overcome as you're going globally with this uh, potential, you know, uh, ocean-going vessel. So a lot of things that we're looking at in that space, but um, I won't go any deeper into that because I don't want to get hit. And finally, I went back to Kendra Ulrich. So I have one more question about nuclear. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's for you, Kendra. So, so you know, as we heard today, there are, there are near-term solutions, there are long-term solutions that are going to require a lot of exploration um, and, and, and a lot that aren't cheap. Why not explore it? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, nuclear is something that they, the industry keeps trying to repackage it itself as being an innovative, um, you know, new technology. We're coming up with this advanced reactor, small modular reactors, those sorts of things. Um, the truth is, is that it takes decades to develop a new nuclear technology. It takes 10 years to build the average nuclear reactor. There are cost overruns into the billions of dollars for most nuclear reactors. I heard earlier about uh, molten salt fast, fast breeder reactors on board ships. Um, I would say history tells us that that is a terrible idea. Um, there was one fast breeder salt uh, reactor in Japan. Um, it had an accident one year after it started, shut down, was offline for 15 years. They brought it back online, had another accident within that year, and was shut down again and decommissioned. So that doesn't sound to me like a reliable technology that you would want to have on a vessel. Um, and so we actually do have a lot of experience with nuclear technologies, and we can look at the history of the industry and say, actually, we know that this is expensive, it's risky. I mean, we're talking about training crew on how to deal with you know, LNG or mm -hmm. ammonia. The complexity of dealing with nuclear technologies on board a vessel is going to require a level of expertise that we simply do not have within the existing crew fleet globally, right? Um, and then there's, of course, the uh, security question. So who is regulating this? The IMO is not a nuclear regulator. They have no experience regulating nuclear technologies. How are we ensuring safety of onboard reactors if there is no one that has the expertise that can actually be regulating how this is being done? Who's training the crew? Uh, nuclear reactors, the civil programs on land are already having a difficult time hiring because young people are not going into nuclear technologies. You hear about pink hydrogen, pink hydrogen being nuclear produced hydrogen. Um, this is also um, incredibly questionable on multiple levels, not only because nuclear reactors produce a vast abundance of radioactive hydrogen, um, but also because nuclear is not a climate resilient fuel source. Um, and that is because the reactors require significant volumes of cold water to cool the reactor core. And uh, so we've had reactors shut down because of droughts, which are made worse by climate change. We've had reactors have to be taken offline because the water was too warm from where they were situated. We've had reactors have to be shut down because of you know, explosion in SALPS populations. SALPS are a gelatinous 
marine creature that got stuck in the intakes. That was also caused by um, you know, increased abundance of food sources as a result of warmer water. So you know, when we're looking at this and saying, what are the, the fuels and the technologies that make sense in a world that has a currently changing climate, makes long-term financial sense, and that we have the ability and the technological understanding to be able to implement rapidly, uh, nuclear is not it. And some of the most critical people I've worked with over my career uh, of civil nuclear programs, commercial nuclear, are nuclear navy. And oh. it is because of the lax regulation. So it was after the Green Seas Fuels Forum that I contacted Core Power's Mikkel Bowe to ask his reflections on the conversation we'd heard. Some of the you know, concerns that came up, and to start off with the first one, which was, uh, when our one of our audience members asked uh, William Burke, who's uh, the chief maritime officer at Carnival, about kind of basically the public at the heart of the question was the public perceptions around around nuclear, and if you had and and as as Bill explained it, if you had a nuclear powered cruise ship, you know the problem is of course parking that cruise ship in and I, and I live in Miami, I they, you know they're right the cruise ships are right downtown, right so. How do you get past those those public perception concerns? You know, I think I think you used the you used the term parking downtown, right? If you can't park downtown, then it's it's not the technology for them. No, clearly that's that, that's important. And you know, go back to what I tried to explain about the key differences between nuclear and we think of nuclear and, and this molten salt reactor, of course, is you know, if you've got something that you know, even if it breaks, right, whilst we're operating at full power, you don't have, you know, any danger around it. It's not like, you know, th there was a story about the LNG um, tanker coming into Boston Harbor. They were sending the football teams out of town, you know, because they didn't want them hurt. But that, it's, we, we can overcome these things. Um, the Savannah was a was visited by 1.7 million people when she was out sailing in the world. The, the Russian nuclear icebreakers that don't have much work in the summer are used as cruise ships. And people pay a lot of money to go on them because they can go places where other ships can't. You know, they go to the North Pole. I, you know, it's, it, 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 it's, it's like the fear inside us, Eric. I mean, if you're not afraid of it, then why wouldn't you? And, and I think that's all to do with information, it's to do with education, it's to do with demonstration, it's to show people, you know, how, how this can work. And, you know, if we're right, and I believe we are, then I think we can overcome that. But to, but to talk about it now and convince people that, yeah, sure, that'll be fine, I think is, is only half the battle. I mean, we need to actually, you know, bring the machine, right, or bring people to the machine and say, well, look, it looks like this. Here's what it does. And, and I, think you'll, I think most people will be surprised. Um, so and then and then lastly, I wanted to ask you about the comments from from Kendra Ulrich. She's an environmentalist who, you know, wants to push shipping to carbonize, um, but but also doesn't see nuclear as a path to do that at all. And I and I wanted to ask you, you know, what do you say to her concerns? I mean, listening to what she was saying and taking each point in turn. I mean, every single one of them was either incorrect or not relevant to what we're talking about, including the Japanese reactor that she was referencing, right? Which is a sodium-fast reactor built as an experimental reactor in Japan in the 1980s. Now, you've got to know the difference between sodium chloride and sodium. Sodium is a volatile um, metal. Um, sodium chloride is something you put on your eggs. 
It's a little old-fashioned to, to say that nuclear is slow, it's too slow, it's too expensive, and there is a history of it going wrong. When in fact, you know, you've got in the United States, you've got nearly 20% of all your electricity made from nuclear energy. And you know, you only had one notable mishap and it was in 1979 two weeks before that famous movie the china syndrome came out nobody got hurt nobody died no one you know nothing really happened it was just but it, there was a lot of panic around it and since then you know 20 percent of the of the world's largest economy powered by nuclear without a single mishap the safety record of this industry is unbelievable same in france the same in the uk same in same in, you know all other big you know um, nuclear nations and we've had We've had Chernobyl, we've had Fukushima Daiichi. Chernobyl was an outlier. I mean, really, you know, I don't think it's relevant to anything that happens today. Chernobyl, and again, sorry, uh, Fukushima again was one of those incidents where, you know, the, the, the rule, the law said you had to evacuate everyone within a 30 kilometer radius because that was the evacuation zone and the government pulled the trigger and, and invoked the law. But really, it wasn't necessary. No one... No one got hurt. No one was going to get hurt from it. It was, it was, it was a, it was a shame. It's sort of, you know, a bit of a funk that we got ourselves into with this. So to to bring those things up and say that that's somehow relevant, this is is, in my opinion, erroneous. The other thing is about cost, right? The cost and time. It doesn't cost a lot of money, and it doesn't take a lot of time to build the reactor. What costs money and takes time is to build everything else. If you're building a big power station. Here in the UK, we've got two of them being built at the moment. Each one of them are pouring 3 million tons of concrete. You know, 8,000 people working on a construction site, which is the biggest construction site in this country and has been since they built the, the, the motorway around London in the 1980s. You know, it is, it is a, it's, it's, it's a civil construction project that takes time. The reactor is actually... Fairly, fairly standard and doesn't take that much and isn't that expensive. So if you take away that concrete, if you take away that 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 balance of plant, that that construction project, and you create a marine product out of this that's fitted in in a steel structure, you know, without that pressure around it and with proper shielding and containment, so that it's all done correctly. You know, I, I think really we're looking at a, a whole a paradigm shift in the way that nuclear works, and I think that's why. Shipping is also in maritime is such an important part of what the future of the nuclear industry because maritime has that ability to make complex product pro products in, uh, in in yards you know serialized products in in, in yards um, that that really no other industry has it's like rapid skyscraper building right when you're building when you're building ships or barges or floating power stations etc so I think uh, you know I'd, I'd encourage Kendra to get in touch and for us to have a have a conversation about the facts um, and, and, and look at this from a real perspective. I think misrepresentation of nuclear is it's still out there, but it's dying a slow death. Here's more on the environment and the business of the ocean. For the Green Seas newsletter, I interviewed Madden McLean, who's Secretary General of the Zero Emissions Ship Technology Association. She explained to me how, while international shipping regulations focus on ships of 5,000 gross tons or more, it's actually smaller ships that are better placed to adopt the technologies made by her group's members. I think if I could, if I could wind, if I could turn back time, I would include vessels um, between uh, 400 uh, GT and um, 5,000 in the data collection system. 
because I, I think that this is a real missed opportunity. We have the technology to transition these vessels. This is about 15% of uh, international shipping's emissions. We could do that. We could do that tomorrow. Um, so, so in a manner of speaking, if, if the right mechanisms were there, the industry in and this sector as well. There's a lot of um, ship owners within this sector that that are ready to go, but they can't because the business case isn't there. So. Yeah, if I had if I had a magic wand, um, I would include vessels of that size in the data collection system, and and we will be lobbying for that. Now there is a place where the focus is on small vessels, the U.S. state of California. The state is pushing for zero emissions vessels in its harbors, and maritime company Crowley is responding with an all-electric tug. But Crowley senior vice president Matthew Yacovone told the Green Seas Fuels Forum that electric may only work in some ports. Uh, so it's a very unique solution. We think that the, the more long-term solution, at least in the, in the tug fleet, is, is, uh, is both a hydrogen fuel cell and then also a dual fuel, um, you know, di still diesel uh, tier four with uh, battery and hybrid technology going forward where you can plug in. Sign up for the Green Seas newsletter at tinyurl.com slash greenseas. Music for this episode is by Audio Coffee on Pixabay.